minute and 17 seconds left in the penalty and here comes Bobby Hull with Gordy Howe. What a combination. Mahovlich is the other winger. Going into the corner, Gordy Howe goes in to fight for it. He and Sigenkov have it. Back to Walt, not in front. Here's Bobby Hull, she scores! Bobby Hull! And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Lanner. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Welcome to episode 50 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. This is a topic episode featuring many of our previous guests. First, we'll celebrate the 45th anniversary of the Forgotten Summit, the eight-game 1974 Summit Series battle between the best of Team Canada, i.e. Team WHA, and the Soviet Union. Rick Smith played defense for Team Canada 74, and he provides unique insights into this overlooked super series that featured the likes of Bobby Hull, Gordy Howe, Vladislav Tretiak, Valery Karmalov, and many of hockey's all-time greatest legends. Next, NHL training camp is well underway, so we'll talk to several of our former guests, Rick Middleton, Blake Dunlop, Wayne Babich, Morris Lukowicz, Rick Smith, and Phil Bork about their first NHL training camp experience. And finally, we'll conclude with a look at a major NHL alumni event that we'll be involved with. The New York Rangers alumni versus the Boston Bruins alumni. It's a doubleheader on October 26, 27, 2019. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the show. Your input has a big impact on making the show more visible to hockey fans around the world. Also, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pro Hockey Alumni. Home base for the show is our website, ProHockeyAlumni.org. Now, let's talk classic hockey. Face off. Pat Fabelud comes up with it. Moving up the right side for Team Canada. Center ice area. Relay for Gordy Howe. Howe shoots. He scores. A great pass, but look at the burst of speed. He gets this pass here. Where does he put it? Right upstairs. Look how far Trecek was out, yet he tucked it in up in high. If you were a fan of the World Hockey Association, the 1974 Summit Series between the best of the WHA and the Soviet Union was quite an exciting event. It was kind of a coming out party in a lot of ways for the WHA. Uh, they would have players like Bobby Hull, Frank Mahovlich, Gordy Howe, J.C. Tremblay, Jerry Cheever. So this was a pretty good 
talent, uh, amount of talent on, on the Team Canada roster. And really, as we'll discuss here, the roster, uh, the talent on that team was not all that much less than Team Canada of 1972. I'm not saying it was even, but uh, this was a good representative team that the World Hockey Association put out there. Of course, the Soviets were ready for North American uh, competition after the 72 series, so no surprises there. The Team Canada team was led by Billy Harris, who was the head coach, and they had a 16-day camp in Edmonton to start it off. They played, uh, I think, five games against the Western Canadian Junior All-Stars, and uh, they were ready to go. So the very first game was in uh, Quebec City, and the Soviets were ahead 3-2 with a little over five minutes left, and then Bobby Hull tied this game. Five minutes, 51 seconds remaining in the hockey game. Soviets leading 3-2. Canadians with Johnny McKenzie and Lacroix keeping it inside. Right in front Bobby Hull! Andre Lacroix Bobby Hull. The momentum continued for Dean Cannon game number two in Toronto and they shocked the Soviets with a 4-1 win. Jerry Cheever is an outstanding game for the WHA team and all the momentum is going in Canada's way as we head into game three and that's when Billy Harris made a momentous decision to make five lineup changes for that game. Now Team 72, Team Canada 72 had been plagued by discontent from many of the players who didn't play and ended up defecting and going back home. However, Billy Harris wanted to avoid that, and his solution was to have a mass substitution in Game 3 in Winnipeg. And if you listen to the Paul Henderson, for example, he just basically said it took the steam out of the entire team. It really hurt their momentum so badly. And they often also felt like, hey, how seriously are these guys taking this at the management level? If we're in the middle of a series, we've got the lead, and they're having the substitution of five different players. Rick Lee, Brad Selwood sat. They had played pretty well up to that point. Uh, Gordy Howe was out of the lineup. Frank Mahovlich. Jerry Cheevers, now his father-in-law uh, had passed away during that series. I believe he attended services. was replaced by Don McLeod, who uh, perhaps wasn't you know prepared. He was a good goaltender, but not prepared for that type of uh, international competition. Game four, they let a 5-2 to two lead slip away and a 5-5 tie in Vancouver. So the teams exit the Canadian portion of the tournament with a, a win and a pair of ties and a loss apiece. So it's even. Things are looking pretty good for Canada. They've got to feel pretty good about that. And then the uh, eight-day gap between games four and five, they play two exhibition games, one in Finland, one in Sweden, with victories there. Uh, they go to the Soviet Union, and they did a lot of touristy type of things. Uh, again, you talk to the players, it just seemed like it wasn't taken with the same intensity as, as it was in 1972. And, of course, the Canadians did not win a game in that Soviet portion of the series. They were robbed, however, in Game 7 by the Canadian referee and the timekeeper kind of uh, colluded unintentionally to uh, take a goal away from Bobby Hull, who had scored at the buzzer, which would have given Canada a victory in Game 7 and had given them an opportunity to tie the series uh, in Game 8, but it was not to be. So looking back at Team Canada 74, again, as Team Canadians could be proud of, they really, they worked hard, they were dedicated, they got a little chippy, and that really hurt them. 
As I said, Jerry Cheevers was absolutely epic. It was the best he's ever played. Great career, great Hall of Fame career. Totally forgotten about in the annals of Jerry Cheevers' history as his series in 74. He was incredible. Um, also playing very well for Team Canada was 37-year-old Ralph Backstrom, who still had the Wales Bobby Hull proving, of course. He's the best left wing in the world. Seven goals in eight games. On the other side, Alexander Yakushev, also left wing, had a tremendous series, as he did in 1972. Valari Harmloff was fantastic. Had a couple of spectacular goals in the series. And uh, if you go down the Canadian roster, as I said, the biggest difference between 1972 in 1974, the rosters were relatively comparable. 72, obviously a little bit better. The Phil Esposito factor, he was absolutely unstoppable in 1972. Canadians did not have a player like that. In addition, on defense, while J.C. Tremblay played extremely well, uh, Brad Park was all-world in 1972, stepping up when Bobby, Bobby Orr couldn't play in that series. And there was nobody really of Brad Park's caliber on defense for the 1974 team. Certainly goaltending, I thought, was even a little bit better in 74, but um, Team Canada was also really hurt by some of the higher-scoring players from the league, uh, Mike Walton, Mark Tardif, Rajon Uhl, Serge Bernier, uh, Frank Mahovlich, and uh, even Paul Henderson. The guys just were not productive in this series. Nonetheless, as I said, a team Canada can be proud of, and I really enjoyed reflecting on the series by our good friend Rick Smith, who is always insightful, had a great story about how he was chosen for the team, and he kind of remembers almost game by game uh, how this thing unfolded. So here's Rick Smith. There's nothing like playing for your country to start mm-hmm. with. So when you're on Team Canada, and two years previous, Team Canada 72 won a last-minute, un- most unbelievable series. It is the hockey event of the history of hockey for Canadians. Right. So... You know, with Miracle on Ice in 80 and Jack McCartan in 1960 and every hockey series you can think of, wrap them up and that might be close to what Team Canada 72 Russia series was uh, for Canadians. Right. So to be the next team to come along alone, it was such an honor to be involved with it. A side note there is the reason I was picked for the team was quite simple. They went to Jerry Cheevers, who was the best goalie in the league, obviously going to be the, 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 the goalie for Team Canada. Then they said, who do you want on defense? And Jerry Cheevers said myself and Paul Schmier and obvious guys like uh, Pat Stapleton and uh, J.C. Tremblay, mm-hmm. uh, two other great players, uh, Ricky Lee and uh, Brad Selwood. But to be picked by your goalie, and as I say, the thread in my life of Jer- Jerry Cheevers in my life from day one from training from the Fog Lounge mm-hmm. to Team Canada 74 to coming back to the Bruins again Jerry Cheevers was a central figure uh, but in particular with 74 I was there but I was there because of Jerry Cheevers saying I want you on as a defenseman so that alone is just you're in the clouds with respect of well what am I? This is what a what a thrill! What a is this ever scary? One of the guys said, "Canada's with us, win or tie." <laughs> <laughs> so there was pressure, and again, now we're representing our WHA, which is a fledgling league, a bunch of renegades, a bunch of rebels, and all that sort of thing. But it's business, and there's a lot of money on the line because we're a new league that still hasn't made it over the top. Um, some teams are folding, uh, 
but you're representing your whole league in more. So now you're representing your country, your league, and Jerry Cheevers. Uh, <laughs> right. But so it was. It was a tremendous thing to be involved with, as exciting as you can imagine. Uh, you can't even do a comparative relative to to uh, uh, the seventies Bruins or, or the late seventies Don Cherry's Bruins. All incredible experiences, unique by itself. Um, but I mean, this is your country. This is, and this is the communism and mm -hmm. uh, you know all the political, and it was very political. Uh, anyway, um, getting to the point, we had a great game in in uh, Quebec to start it off, and we didn't know really what to expect. We knew they were good. We didn't know how good they were, um, but we were tied three three. And Gordy Howe stripped the defenseman, gave, basically gave the, the defenseman a chop on his hands, took the puck, handed it to Frank Mahovlich, and Frank Mahovlich is going in clear from the blue line on Trechak, and I, I think he got a glove save or blocker, got hit with a blocker. But we could have easily won game one. Mm -hmm. And we knew we played with them and good enough to win. Now we go to Toronto, and again, we're a little, we're feeling better, we've got a bit of confidence, unsure. But we had a big game in, in Toronto, and we won, I think, 5-2 or whatever the score was. It wasn't a, it wasn't a squeaker. Mm -hmm. we, we deserved to win the game. And now we don't know how good we are. We don't know how bad we are. We don't know how good they really are. You know, are they, are they playing possum? What's going on here? So we go to Winnipeg. But a unique, again, situation, which I don't know that you'll hear about very often in sport. But one of the things that the management said to the team was that, Okay, if you come in the team, we'll play everybody. Because right. in '72 they had this problem where the guys re rebelled. Some of the guys left the team because they weren't playing. So to get by that assurance, everybody you'll get to play. Now we're up the game; things are going good. So first thing is they put in the tier two players, if you will. Let's put it, they, they 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 put the players in that didn't get picked for the first game. Right. We had lots of players. Second thing was Jerry Cheevers. A father, father-in-law, I'm pretty sure I, who it was exactly, but a family member had a heart attack. Right, father-in-law. Yeah, yeah, father-in-law. Right. So, so cheesy. It was not. It was natural for him not to play because I think he whatever they they went with uh, two parts. Right, promised to play the guys, and cheesy. I think was probably involved with the funeral. So we went with our, our backup goalie uh, McLeod, Smokey McLeod, mm -hmm. who was a good goalie, but not a great goalie. I mean, when you think of 72, they took Dryden and Antonio to play a, the best games of their lives to win. Right. So it was kind of a combination of everything. But problem was we were went way down. And it was, uh, I forget the score, but it, it, we weren't even close in the game. So going to game four, now what do we got? We got a great start. We got to go up, down. Now it's like a little bit of a yo-yo. But the cards are on the line in Vancouver. And Billy Harris, our coach, who's a great hockey player in the 70s with the Leafs, said it was the best hockey, best period of hockey that he'd ever seen. And Gordy Howe, I think Bobby Hall got three. Yes. Gordy and Frank scored. So, and I'm not absolutely sure of that. I think I'm pretty sure Bobby getting the three, and I'm pretty sure of Gordy, and I'm pretty sure. Anyway, bottom mm -hmm. line, we get five, right, in the first period. And. Holy mackerel, we got it back again. This is fantastic. But that's when 
and you look, you know, you talk about the game in uh, in '71 and, and the double overtime loss in '79. Whatever happens, that for some reason it doesn't work, mm-hmm. and the Russians played outstandingly well, uh, but they tied us. You know, you could say that's a moral victory that we left Canada tied, but we thought we could have won three. So where are you mentally? You're going to Russia. Bad news. Well, we, you know, so we were kind of all over the place. But the essence of the story is, we take a week in Finland and in Sweden and played some exhibition games, and instead of our team coming together and playing better as they did in '72, we took a dip. Right. And Bobby Hall made the statement that the worst thing we did was to go on and spend that week. I mean, there was no, it wasn't a thing you could plan around. You kind of had to do it with all the logistics. Yeah. But Bobby's point, I agree with Bobby, is that if we just kept it going, you know, we were going good, we were, we had a, a great momentum. Um, theoretically, we could have done much better in Russia. And even there, uh, Bobby argues that, and I agree with him, that I think it was game two, uh, we thought we tied it. I think there was a, supposedly was the end of the game, I've kind of got vague memories of that, unfortunately. And I, I've got the tapes, but I don't like watching them. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, well, they were a great team, deserved to win, no question. Um, but disappointing, and we thought we could have done better. If you listen to the show regularly, you probably note that I often ask players about their first training camp experience. I find it to be really interesting. You know, you're 18, 19 years old. All of a sudden, you're thrown into training camp. You're going against grown men who you're trying to take the job away in some cases. Uh, you're playing with and against legends you may have watched on TV growing up. So what is that whole experience like? I always find that to be intriguing, like overcoming that fear and getting out there and proving yourself, especially at, at such a young age. And we're going to start with Wayne Babbage, we, we, as I go to the top of the show, we'll talk to six or seven guys, but we'll start with Wayne Babbage, and his biggest fear would have been my biggest fear, which was hazing. Well, he's able to avoid it in training camp and into the early part of the season, but again, I thought Wayne's memories and comments about training camp were very interesting, as it is with all these players, so enjoy these first training camp stories from the 1970s and 80s. Well, I was, uh, I was scared. I went into the, uh, with the action. I wanted to make that team, um, you know, and they obviously talking to Amo and Barkley, uh, they wanted me to make it too. Uh, you know, and obviously for a lot of reasons in their scouting program, uh, I came into the best shape I've ever been in. Um, I remember, you know, as funny as it sounds, I was always afraid of the initiation that I was going to get. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. And it, it played a big part because uh, I think I was in the top, you know, I was the top, one of the top scorers for the first uh, couple months in points. Or mm-hmm. I was always up there. And I remember the veterans saying, if whenever you stop scoring, it's, it's going to be time. <laughs> so, so that was a very big motivation. Well, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny after I broke a couple of my, you know, after I broke a couple of ankles, and uh, <laughs> right. that's when they got me finally. <laughs> but that was, I can tell you about that later. But anyway, um, you know, the it was, you know, I think, you know, 
it was a very physical game, you know, coming to training camp two a days. And I remember my first hit was against a guy named Steve Cabello. You know, oh, he boy. was a right. very aggressive guy. He hit me, but I stood him up. Like I, I, one thing about me, I, which, you know, over the course of years, and I think even, well, my brother, obviously, uh, his story, he's a very hard man to knock over. And my dad kind of, you know, don't take pride in not getting knocked out. If you get, if you get knocked out, get back right away. And, and you know, over the course of time, you're, you're, my balance was, I, I thought, that was one of my strengths. And, and, and it also helped me in, in reference to the, uh, to dancing with people out there. <laughs> you know, you oh, know, yeah. didn't want to fall. You know, but you had, and plus, you know, the game was clutch and grab. There was a lot of grabbing, stick work and stuff. So the, the best place to be is beyond your feet. And, um, and, and, uh, so when he hit me, we both <laughs> went back and it was like, I was so happy I was still standing, but I was hurting, but kept on going. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, uh, and when we, uh, you know, a guy named Harold snaps, yeah, I played with him in, in, in Edmonton. He's the okay. He obviously was in Vancouver, but he always told me, uh, you know, you're here for a reason. They picked you for a reason to play your game and, you know, and what what he also said, don't respect anybody in reference to them until they prove that they deserve your, you know, you know like mm-hmm. he said, don't let a guy verbally intimidate you, I guess. And then you, you get scared of him, like make him prove that you should be scared of him or make him prove that he's a better, you know, like just don't give them an edge, like battle with them and see what happens. And uh, you could come out the, you know, the better end, you know, and that's what I kind of tell kids to, to, to today. Like, uh, it's kind of like a positive thinking. Like, don't let people dictate what you want to be, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you do the best you can. And that's sort of how I went to training camp. I, I said, I'm making this team, and whether you shame me or not, let me know. It's obviously <laughs> I never said that out loud, but <laughs> I, I want to, you know, and I, like, again, it goes back to, you know, I want my parents to be proud that, you know, all the work that we've all done to do this. And, you know, my brother was right behind me, and, as well, that's sort of the motivation that I had. You know, obviously, it wasn't the money. <laughs> uh, right. in those days, but it's just you know, saying I, you know, I played in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Number one draft pick Rick Middleton had a strong training camp in 1973 with the New York Rangers. However, back in the day, Emil Francis uh, had a preference for the players starting out at the minor leagues, and the Rangers had a lot of talent. So Rick earned a ticket to Providence, Rhode Island, for his first professional season. You know, I wish I could remember, like, specific things, but uh, I just remember being awful nervous. And uh, the camp was in in Kitchener, Ontario, which uh, Kitchener has a a junior A team we played against for two years. So, you know, I knew where the Kitchener Rangers were, the New York Rangers, but going to training camp, and like I said, meeting some of my boyhood idols, I mean, Eddie Jockelman and Rod Gilbert and Jean Rattel, I mean, you know, they weren't ancient, but to me, they were a lot older. (laughs) uh, But all I remember is that they were first class. They, they didn't treat me like, Hey, this, what this kid's trying to take my job type of deal. It was, they welcomed me with open arms, uh, first class and Neil Francis was first class. And even though I got sent to the minors, uh, I understood it. You know, they, the Ranger, the Rangers played the Bruins a year before for the cup. So they had a Stanley cup caliber team. Uh, at that time, so I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll go. I'll go to Prague, wherever that is, Providence, Rhode Island." Phil Bork would go on to have a pair of Stanley Cups with the Pittsburgh Penguins and an excellent career there. But it began 
as a free agent signee in 1982 at training camp, which began in Johnstown and ended in Pittsburgh. And among other things, Phil recalls the spectacular skyline of Pittsburgh as he drove through the Squirrel Hill Tunnel for the first time. And no, no surprise at all that Phil remains in Pittsburgh to this day. Well, training camp was in Johnstown, uh, and it was the, the old War Memorial, where anybody who's ever seen Slapshot uh, <laughs> would recognize that rink. And um, I'll be honest with you, I borrowed my mom's 1978 Mercury Cougar, and I piled a bunch of stuff in there, including my hockey equipment. And I remember driving through the Squirrel Hill Tunnel here in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and it, it's all of a sudden it opens up and you see the whole skyline. And I tell you what, man, it was emotional for me. I just looked at that skyline. I was like, I'm home, baby. Isn't this that is incredible? I, it, I don't in- know why. No, it's incredible because I had the exact same experience when I went to Pittsburgh, which I consider to be one of the great – I would have lived the rest of my life there had my career had gone in that direction. <laughs> I loved it. But what you remember is coming out of that tunnel – I know Mary Lemieux yeah. tells that first story. It's very, very striking. Such an right. underrated city, especially back then, and it was a beautiful place that you, you've called home. But I'm sorry I interrupt your, your story about training camp. No, 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 no. That's fine. No, I'm, I'm glad you interjected because you're right. It's it's a, just such a unique town like none other that all of a sudden you come through these tunnels and bam, there's this <laughs> skyline. And for some reason, I felt like this is where I belong. I, you know, I'm I'm proud to be a Bostonian and, and, and born there, but Pittsburgh's my home and there's a reason why I'm here. And um, for some reason, that training camp, and again, it gets back to my relationship with my dad, is I aired it out, man. I brought it i gave everything i possibly had and i was going to be noticed come hell or high water i was going to get noticed at that camp and i was going to get a contract and i was not dragging my butt back to my dad to say oh i didn't make it because remember i burnt my amateur eligibility by going up to kingston there's no turning back and playing college hockey anymore right and so i end up i end up getting a contract a two-way contract a three-year deal with baz bestine the the general manager at the time and uh it was it was an eye again, another eye opener because then you're you're playing against established NHLers and uh, uh, you know a lot of it. I'll be honest with you, looking back on it now, a lot of it was just the God-given skill that I had. I could always skate. I didn't have the best hands in the world, but I could always skate. And as I went up in levels, that's the one thing that helped me survive was uh, the ability to skate. Blake Dunlop's first. NHL training camp was 1973 with the Minnesota North Stars, a team that had plenty of colorful characters, especially goaltender Gump Worsley, a Hockey Hall of Famer who had a unique approach to practice. It was a bit of a, an adjustment, really. I mean, when most of the guys are, you know, even I'm rooming with somebody who's as old as my dad almost, you know, mm-hmm. so... It was uh, a little bit of an adjustment being a younger player trying to break in. It was very old school, but I also would say that those guys were were, were very good to me. Uh, uh, Bill Goldsworthy, J.P. Paris, they became, um, you know, good friends. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jude Druin was somebody else that uh, came with J.P. Paris. They did the team, um, you know, from the Islanders. So right. there was a lot of guys there that were helpful. Lou Nanny was another one who was there and, and – uh, uh, Murray Oliver. So I, I, I did have a lot of guys that, that helped, but it was a little bit uh, uh, of a different, you know, going from, from, you know, junior team to that, that level of pro and, and Gump was a colorful, interesting guy. When you, you looked at him, um, you wondered how the guy could ever, uh, his body could ever stop a puck. Or right. But when he got in the net, man, he could, um, 
you know, he was agile and quick and competitive and he, he didn't like to, he didn't like to practice. Uh, you know, I'll tell you a little story of, um, you know, he, he never wore a mask, but he would wear it in, in practice. And we would used to do this drill where we'd pass it to the winger, you know, going down, you know, step over the blue line, top of the circles, take a shot on the goalie, you know, to kind of just get moving, get warmed up. Well, well, Gump didn't want to stand in the net. So he would stand off to the side of the net and try to <laughs> knock them out of the way with his goalie stick because he didn't really want to get hit. <laughs> so then some of the older players started shooting at him and hitting them and then he <laughs> then he chased a few of them around the rink with his stick afterwards so it was a little bit of a intro into the pro leagues watching watching all this shenanigans going on i really enjoyed hearing these stories from morris lukowicz about his first camp with the wha houston arrows and learning a little bit about gordy howe mark howe and the howe family code what i did i didn't have any hockey sticks so it ended up that uh um Teddy Taylor, uh, the captain of the team, lent me a couple of hits. Now, Teddy used a really heavy stick, mm-hmm. and it was also a low lie. So it wasn't ideal, and yet, like, I just actually didn't have any hockey sticks. So it ended up that uh, that was a little bit of frustrating. And yet, I mean, the very first day of camp, all we did was skate. And so, I mean, I was flying around uh, as much as I could. Right. And... Uh, and like I was in real, I was in good shape. And you know that was at a time that was the nineteen seventy, seventy six, seventy seven, where guys were just starting to come to camp in shape instead of coming to camp to get in shape. And um, I was like, I was one of the first guys. Like when I showed up on day one, I was in amazing shape. So where other guys were came and were possibly some of the veterans, they were getting into shape there. Like I was flying around and my aerobic capacity was amazing and, and it was an advantage for me. So like I was out there just and I just gave her a hundred percent all the time. It was, uh, I mean, the camp was pretty intimidating. There's lots of big guys out there. And, um, but I mean, I just, uh, I can even remember there were a couple of veterans that when I was flying around. They'd, they'd say, Hey, rookie, slow down. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd slow down for a second and I would just put the guy, pedal back to the metal because I thought that was the way I'd make the team. And uh, ended up the very first, and then the second day we scrimmaged. And this kind of interesting thing that happened was I was put on a right wing with Gordy Howe. So Gordy was center. I forget who the left winger was. Uh, it might have been John Tonelli, I think. But it ended up... I was like, I remember standing at that face-off dot thinking, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. Like, Gordy Howe, I'm on the line with Gordy Howe. It ends up, we get the puck and we get down and they're in, we get a shot on the goalie, and we go over and face off uh, to the goalie's uh, left. And uh, I'm a right winger, so I line up on the boards and it ends up, I line up right beside Mark Howe. And uh, it ends up that... uh, I kind of look and I remember thinking to myself, wow, Mark Howe, this is incredible. And right at that moment, Mark takes and just spears me. Like he buries about two feet of stick into my left leg. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, he was, you know, every dog marks its uh, location. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what he was doing. 
I mean, he was a left winger. And so, yeah, so he ends up just spearing me. And so it ends up, I'm going after him and, uh, to have a scrap. He kind of skate, he skates away and I'm going after him and, uh, who, and a guy steps right in front of me, John Shella. He was a defenseman. And he says, you don't want to do that. And I said, what are you talking about? He just speared me. I'm just going to go and, you know, take a strip out of him. And he says, you don't want to do that. Gordy will get you. And it was my first uh, experience of uh, finding out that uh, how Gordy protected his boys. And so I just, so I just, I said to John, I said, really? He says, yeah. And he says, Gordy will get you. Just forget about it. So it was amazing. Like John just passed away here about six months ago. And I can still remember so clear how he stepped right in there. And he just said it quiet, quietly enough that only he and I could hear it. Maybe Gordy could too. Anyways, and I just said, oh, okay. And so I just backed off. Rick Smith remembers joining the Boston Bruins, the big bad Bruins in the late 1960s and how guys like Jerry Cheevers and Wayne Cashman had made that experience so much more comfortable for him and really took him under his wing. He's got some funny stories about that early experience with the soon-to-be Stanley Cup champion, Boston Bruins. Oh, I was in a way over my head. Um, I was set to go to Oklahoma City. I knew some of the fellows, Tommy Webster and... Uh, Oh, I kind of see that considering I played against those fellas. And I was geared for Oklahoma City. There was no question. So every time, I, like I can imagine, or I can remember the first exhibition game I played, I looked around and I went, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Oh, I guess they do that with the rookies or something like that. Um, and it was a surprise even to be in the game. And I got through the game. Do you know what I mean? Like my goal is just not to make a fool of myself and follow my face. So I got through the games in a sense, but... You know, there's a bit of a moral story that's jumping in my head right now. And I might jump ahead to uh, a, a story uh, regarding Don Cherry. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, when I was on the ice, as quickly as I got the puck, I got rid of it. And that was more of a fear. You know, there was no confidence. It was just, I got, oh, get rid of it, hot, hot potato. Get <laughs> it up. And, of course, you get up the forwards. But the, the story that's associated with that is that one year playing for Don Cherry, I had what they call gamekeeper's thumb. And that's the, in the, on the um, uh, on your thumb, and if you look between the thumb and the forefinger, there's a ligament that ties the thumb together to the hand, and, and uh, the gamekeeper would be choking chickens. Mm -hmm. So a lot of pressure on the thumb, tear a ligament. Anyway, I had that strange injury. Um, so when it happened, I couldn't move my hand or my hand. I couldn't hold a hockey stick or anything, and they put a cast on it. And I, I, I think they said uh, four to six weeks, something like that, as a ligament would be. But anyway, shortly thereafter, they said, can you try a, just a playing cast? <laughs> you got to be kidding. Mm -hmm. Why would I have a playing cast when <laughs> I need a cast and I can't hold my stick? But sure enough, you, I mean, how do you say no? Of course you, and I think that's the one thing that Don Cherry, when a player would, you know, put himself on the line, that's when he kind of said, hey, I'm with that guy. Right. Uh, and, and in my case, so I'm playing with the, the cast on my hand and thinking, well, this is going to be a short adventure. <laughs> so I got in, but that same thing is beginning of training camp. When I had the buck, bing, I got it right up to somebody or got it out. You know, so my job didn't, I, I didn't have to be uh, the skilled player like uh, Bobby Orr or Brad Park. 
all they really were concerned about was the puck getting out of our end. And in fact, as time went on, that's probably what got me through the, my whole career. It's a limited tactic or a limited skill, but puck up over the blue line. That's all that mattered. Um, anyway, when they, my injury was, I'm so happy. I'm going to get my cast off, and I'm just thrilled, right? And Don came to me and said, Rick, I'm not allowing you to take your cast off. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> what do you mean? I've been just scrimping through the game, just barely getting through, and you want me to keep wearing this cast? He says, yeah, I've never seen you play better. <laughs> Isn't that something? That is funny. Uh, um, yeah, but, but to uh, carry back to, to the training camp thing, um, so I got through the games, got through the games, and again, I'm seeing the guys filtering on down to Oklahoma City. They were leaving with their cars and their trailers. Um, and they said to me, okay, Rick, you're going to go to Boston with Bobby Leader, who I had watched in playing Kingston when he was a minor league player with the Kingston Frontenacs. He played for the Bruins. So here I am in this car with a, a veteran player thinking, what are we doing here? And I can remember the drive was down, like we, it seemed to be at night or something, and uh, I'm, I'm, like, I'm in total darkness, wondering where am I going, what am I doing? I had no, <laughs> no plan for this at all, or, or mm-hmm. wasn't ready. So then we show up at the Madison Hotel. And I, have you ever heard stories of the Madison Hotel? I have not. Well, it was, it was, I think it was the first building I ever saw imploded. Oh. You know, the implosion <laughs> thing? Mm-hmm. And they couldn't do it soon enough. <laughs> it was probably, it was right beside the garden. So we went down the lobby, and then you walked into the North Station. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful building on the outside, but inside it was just a wreck. And I think it was kind of like one of those it should be demolished buildings, but for some reason they decided to redo two floors in it. I mean, it was probably a 20-story building, but there were two floors that were livable. <laughs> the whole team is in training camp at the Madison Hotel. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around and going, this is really scary. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I thought this is going to be a short adventure. But as you say, injuries stepped in, and it was odd as could be that uh, Gary Doak was in particular was hurt and uh, I think it was a groin that probably took a six week thing but even at that I wasn't the best defenseman to be there uh, but another peculiarity Barry Gibbs the previous year who was their number one pick the year I was picked um, uh, Barry Gibbs had been up the year before and Barry Gibbs was a, just a heart and soul hockey player a great mm-hmm. player mm-hmm. right hand defenseman and just a tough guy everyone would want a, a number one pick sort of thing and number one pick overall so it should, it should have been him. But having done it the previous year, and the fifth defenseman basically sat on the bench and watched because they played four defensemen. Right. And every once in a while, if, the, if, there was a, if, it, if it didn't matter that much, they'd throw at the guy to have a, just a feel for the ice to get credit for the game or whatever it was. Anyway, Gizzi said, I'm not doing this. I'm not staying here. So all of a sudden, they, you know, that was kind of a shock for the Bruins, probably. So he's off to Oklahoma City, and they looked around, and they thought, wow, gee, we don't really have anybody else we want to do this with. Oh, tell Rick, come on, what the, what the heck, you know? <laughs> and that was pretty well, like, that, that story kept going. As I say, we stayed in the Madison for the whole team. And uh, then Jerry Cheevers, and Jerry Cheevers is really the probably the most important character in my whole career, um, but in particular, uh, Cheesy said to, and Cheesy was, even in training camp, was really good to me, mm-hmm. uh, as long as Eddie, as well as uh, Eddie Johnson. The two goalies were just like godfathers and big brothers and family. 
But uh, anyway, uh, Cheesy said to uh, Ace Bailey and, and Wayne Cashman, he said, uh, my, the house I'm renting isn't uh, ready to rent yet, and my wife's having a baby, so um, how about we share a, a, we'll get a great big hotel room, a suite, up on Route 1 in Saugus. And uh, Cheesy and, and Cashman, Derek Cashman, he said, oh, yeah, gee, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll get out of this hotel, and we'll up there. Oh, yeah, beautiful. So and then they said, well, can we bring Ricky along? <laughs> uh, another a very important person in my career was Wayne Cashman. And when he were from Kingston, and when it kind of came time for me to my first training camp, Cash called up and said, uh, can I give you a ride to training camp? <laughs> wow, you're not kidding. Because I, I played with his brother, but I didn't really know him. He was an idol uh, a few years older than I am, and mm-hmm. uh, just a, an idol. So here's this idol saying to me, do you want to ride to training camp? And wow. after that, we get there, and he, he introduced me to everybody as his friend. It wasn't just, here's this guy. Here's, what, a, what a difference that makes. Oh, it was enormous. And Cash was always there to protect. But anyway, getting, I could go on and on about Cash for the next hour and a half. But in essence, they, you know, Cash said, well, how about we bring Ricky along? Kind of like bringing along the dog, you know? Well, <laughs> hey, we got a dog, you know? So the best part, now we're staying in this uh, place called, uh, oh, some hotel in the, on Route 1. But I figured out why. The next door to the, this particular motel was the Vogue Lounge. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean a lot, except it just happened to be Cheesy's favorite bar. Oh. So I didn't really drink. I might have had an occasional beer after uh, a game or whatever. I can remember, and I'm, oh, well, just one beer. No, I can't have more than one beer. Just have one beer. So now all of a sudden with the Bruins, who had definitely more than one beer at a time, <laughs> and uh, we're in this Vogue lounge after practice. The whole team was in there, and they're playing liars, poker, and you know, just doing the various things the guys would do in a training camp, uh, bonding, you might say. Anyway, I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, holy mackerel, this is kind of scary. Like I had, <laughs> I had my half a beer, and I, you know, <laughs> what am I going to do? So I said to Cheesy, I said, uh, when are we leaving? He said, we're not. <laughs> so that was an education. Uh, anyway, it was as I say, I was kind of like the um, if you're on a train, I was kind of on the top of the caboose. I right. wasn't even in the caboose, you know. Batiste off for the Devils, plays it cross ice into the far corner. Matteau swoops in to intercept. Matteau behind the net, swings it in front. He As noted earlier, we are going to be involved in a great alumni doubleheader, October 26th and 27, 2019, between the Boston Bruins alumni and the New York Rangers alumni. Now, here is the news release as we posted it on bostonbruinsalumni.com. And follow that for ticket information, updated game information, new participants, prizes, giveaways, things of that nature. It's going to be a great weekend. So here's the news release as noted. The Warrior for Life Fund, in partnership with the Boston Bruins Foundation, is pleased to announce the inaugural Alumni Classic Faceoff for Heroes hockey game between the Boston Bruins and New York Rangers alumni. And that will take place at 1 p.m. on Saturday, October 26, 2019, 
at Bentley Arena in Waltham, Mass. And as noted, there will be a game the following day at Madison Square Garden between the two, which will provide more information later. The Alumni Classic Faceoff for Heroes benefits the Warrior for Life Fund and Navy SEAL Foundation hockey programs. And it will feature NHL Hall of Famers Ray Bork, Joe Mullen, Brian Leach, Glenn Anderson, Jean Rattel, Brad Park, and Rod Gilbert, as well as Bruins and Rangers notables Rick Middleton, Reggie Lemelin, Ken Lindsman, Bob Sweeney, Andrew Alberts, Dave Shaw, Andrew Raycroft, Bruce Crowder, Frank Simonetti, Tom Songen, Ken Hodge Jr., Mike Motto, Mark Mowers, Dan Lacatour, Adam Graves, Ron Duguay, Brad Richards, Brian Mullen, Jeff Bukaboom, Stefan Mateau, Jay Wells, Steve Eminger, Tanner Glass, Colton Orr, Tom Laidlaw, and Steve Valquette are all expected to attend. The Warrior for Life Fund supports programs and infrastructure that helps military families from all service branches cope with unique challenges of combat, extended deployments, disabilities, and long-term lasting effects of the war through the game of hockey. So if you want tickets to the Boston portion of the event on October 26th, you can go to thebruinsalumni.com, and we'll have more information about this on episodes forthcoming up until the day of the event. And we'll be there at the event as well. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to, contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.